Today on the Scott Soap Podcast, we are in our series on the Gospel of John. John writes his gospel that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Enjoy and be challenged by the word of the Lord. Well, good morning and welcome to Scott's Hill. Those of you who are watching us online, we're glad that you're able to join us. Those of you in the Cross Point Center, I want to give a shout out to you guys as you're gathering there, even now as we're meeting. We're so thankful for your commitment to make a shift from this room to that room so we can open up space and we have space and we're looking forward to all the people that God is going to continue to send our way. Thank you for joining us in that process of joining God in his work of transforming lives. So glad that you're here this morning. Take your Bibles if you have them with you, and we're going to conclude our series today on the Gospel of John. We're in John chapter 21, and we're coming down to the end of this 14-week series where we've been looking at um, snippets and portraits of the Lord Jesus given to us by John, one of his disciples. Now, before we jump into chapter 21, I just want to let you know where we're going from this point on. Next week, we're starting a new series that we're calling Staycation. Now, the reason we're calling it Staycation is we're coming up into the summer months, and most of us if not all of us, have some time while we go on a vacation. We vacate from this area. We vacate from our jobs. We vacate from our neighborhoods and our homes, and we go somewhere for a week. But the majority of our summer is spent where we live. And where we live gives us an opportunity to practice a staycation kind of mentality. So during this series, we want to focus on four specific areas as we are going through the summer months together. One of those is to learn how to rest. When you go on a staycation, what you want to do is you want to be rejuvenated because of rest. And we want to look at what God's word has to say to the believer about what rest is for our life and how do we enjoy and tap into rest in a very hurried culture. And then we're going to look at um, reconnecting with family. That will be on Mother's Day. And we're talking about how can we spend time this summer to reconnect as family members and understand what God wants us to be as a family unit together. But then the third week, we're going to look at reconnecting or actually rediscovering our community. And looking at rediscovering our community gives us the opportunity for us to find out ways that we can be involved in ministry, maybe that we've not thought of before. And maybe going, doing things that are different as a family in our community that we're not used to being involved in. And the last thing is we're going to re-engage with life's rhythms. How do we get back into the rhythms of life that God wants us to have? Now, these are going to be very healthy for us as a church family. It's going to be fun. We're going through the summer months. And then in June, we're going to be launching a series that will go from June to July. So we're gearing up for all this. So beginning next week, we're going to look at that. Now, today, we're in John chapter 21. Now, John chapter 21 is unique to John. None of the other gospel writers record what we're about to go through. And only John captures the event of the Lord Jesus with the disciples on the Sea of Galilee after his resurrection. Many scholars would say, why is it so important to believers? Well, probably at least four reasons John 21 is important. Number one, it reiterates that Jesus was bodily resurrected from the dead, that he had a resurrected body and he's appearing to his disciples. He's eating breakfast with them. So it's very important for us to see the reality of the resurrection. 
The second thing is we see that Jesus continues to take care of his disciples. Even after the resurrection, he is there loving on them, taking care of them. The third reason, many scholars say, is because John is clearing up a point, one that we are not going to look at today. But at the end of John chapter 21, there was a rumor going around that John the disciple was not going to die, that he was going to be around until the Lord Jesus came back. And John clears this up at the end of chapter 21. But probably the greatest reason that this passage is so important to believers is because we see in there the loving nature of the Lord Jesus as a restorer. And that he restores those who are followers who fail in following him. I mean, the question is this, who among us here has not failed in following Jesus? Who among us as believers have not disobeyed in some way? There's no person in this room that has perfectly obeyed all the commandments of the Lord Jesus since you've come to faith in him. All of us have moments of weakness. All of us, as the song we sang, are prone to wonder. And all of us have times in our lives where we let the Lord Jesus down. I remember distinctly, I was a senior in high school. I had just come to faith in Christ in March, and this was about the summer months. I was at a gas station, and I was so excited about Jesus. I had this little cross that I had made. It was in the days where all the plaiting and stuff was really popular, and I plaited myself this cross, and I'm wearing it. And I'm like, Jesus, I'm so excited that you saved me. I want to tell everybody about you. I'm at this gas station. This guy named Mike comes up, very popular in high school. He was an athlete. Everybody loved Mike. He was cool. I'm standing there pumping the gas in, and he comes over there and talks to me. And I'm like, wow, Mike is talking to me? And I'm standing there, and he looks at me. He said, yeah, where'd he go? I see you got that little cross on your neck. He said, you're not one of those Jesus freaks, are you? And man, I just froze. I, I, I said, well, well, what do you mean? He said, you're not one of those people that's going to be preaching about Jesus all the time because I know the way you used to live your life. And I said, no, man, I'm not like that. No. Nah. He said, why are you wearing that cross? I said, some kid gave that to me and I don't want to hurt their feelings. You know, he said, okay, cool. He said, I, I just was hoping you wouldn't be that kind of guy. Mike got in his car, he drove off. And I was absolutely ashamed. I thought, Lord, I have denied you. I failed in following you. Now, let me tell you the worst part of that story. Mike was killed two weeks later in a car wreck. And for years, that event I struggled with. For years, I thought, how can the Lord possibly use me? Here I am. I denied him. And this guy now is in eternity when I could have had the opportunity to share Christ. And that brought a sense of defeat to my own life. But one of the things I began to learn about Jesus is he is not at all like the Jesus I had in my mind, the one who would beat me down. Instead, he was a picture of one who would restore. Some of you know what I'm talking about because you yourself have been dealing with issues of your own past and you're wondering how did you get through all of this. This morning, as we look at John 21, I want to show you something that's really encouraging, something that will restore us as followers of Jesus Christ in the midst of our failures and the junk of our lives. And there's no greater illustration in the New Testament than Peter. 
If there was anybody that failed in his following, you know it was Peter. You remember what he did. And you remember that before Jesus was arrested, Jesus met with the disciples. And before we jump in chapter 21, let's go down memory lane and remember what Peter did. Remember Peter, he's always the outspoken one, right? Peter's the one who's gonna talk before he thinks. Peter's a guy that always gets himself in trouble. And let's look at how he does it. And in Mark's gospel, chapter 14, beginning in verse 27, we recount that memory of when Peter denies the Lord. Here's what Jesus said to him. This was before he's arrested. Jesus said to them, you will all fall away. Speaking to all of his disciples, you will all fall away for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you in Galilee. He said, you're all gonna fall away. Peter should have taken note of that, right? But no, Peter has to have the last word. Peter says to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. Now listen to what he just said. Peter elevated himself among all the other disciples. He said, they're all weaker than I am. They're all more prone to deny you than I am. They're going to be the ones to fall away, but I won't. Let me ask you this question. Have you ever met people in your life where you thought you were so much spiritually along further than they were? Have you ever met people in your life where you look down and you say, well, I sure love Jesus more than they do. I would never do what they do. I would never do that. Be careful. Pride always goes before fall. And Peter just tells Jesus this. So what does Jesus do? Jesus tells him the truth. He said, truly, I tell you, this very night, Peter, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. Now, you would think Peter would learn to say, okay, don't say anything. Just shut up. No. But he said emphatically, I must die with you. I will not deny you. And they all said the same. Now, to be fair, they all said it. But Peter, out there, saying that his words are greater than the words of Jesus. Jesus said, you're going to deny me. No, I'm not. I'm going to have the last word. You can't win this, Jesus, even though you're the sovereign king of the universe and forever, ever, and own all things from the end of time to the beginning. No, he doesn't do that. So let's fast forward. Jesus is arrested. He's taken into the court. And in John chapter 18, the prophecy that Jesus spoke to Peter is going to come true. So Simon Peter followed Jesus, and in Luke's gospel, it says he followed at a distance. And so did another disciple. The other disciple is John. And since that disciple was known to the high priest, John was, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. Then it goes on. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple who was known to the high priest, John, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. Now, we don't know what he said to her, but there's a possibility John knew the servant girl. The servant girl knew John. She may have even known that he was a disciple of Jesus, which probably is why she asked the question to Peter, which moves the process of denial. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? Now, Peter had just come from the garden. He chopped off the ear of a servant with a sword. He's all bold. He's all tough. He's all that. But here's a little servant girl, which was the lowest person in a house, who asked him the question, and he is afraid. And what does he say? I am not. I'm not a follower of Jesus. Just denied, first time. Then we go on. Now, the servant's 
and the officers made a charcoal fire. I want you to remember that. They make a charcoal fire, which is unusually because most of the time fires are made out of wood, but here they take charcoal and they put it in some kind of container and there's a charcoal fire. Tuck that away in your mind because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them standing and warming himself. Now let's jump to verse 25 of chapter 18. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? Second time he denied it and he said, I am not. And then it happens for the third time. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off. This is an eyewitness. Ask, did I not see you in the garden with them? You cut off my cousin's ear. Peter again denied it. Third time. And at once the rooster crowed. Luke's gospel captures this in a poignant way. He says, as soon as the rooster crowed, Jesus looked at Peter eye to eye and Peter wept bitterly and ran out. Here's the interesting thing. From that point on, you hear nothing from Peter. From that point on, you see nothing of Peter at the crucifixion. The next time we meet Peter is on Easter Sunday morning where he runs to the tomb with John. But he goes silent. He goes dark. He's in a place of absolute brokenness and despair because of his denial. Now, I want to tell you something. When you and I deny Jesus, when you and I fail in following him, it often brings a time of humility, doesn't it? But now I want to tell you something. When you and I walk away and disobey Jesus, there are two things that can happen. It can make us bitter or it can make us better. And there are two individuals that want to take your failure and use it in a different way. Let me give you an illustration. The devil reminds us of our failures in order to paralyze us. The enemy of our soul wants to take the failures of our lives and bring it so into the forefront of our hearts and our minds that it creates shame and guilt and fear because his goal is to paralyze us. His goal is to make us think, you know what? I have so let Jesus down. He's so upset with me. He's so mad with me. My fellowship with him is broken. I will never be any use for his kingdom's work. And his goal is to so paralyze the child of God that they define their lives by their failures and not the freedom that they have in Jesus. I tell you, it happens all the time. That embarrassing sin that stumps you and you feel like you can't get over. Those relentless temptations and that area of weakness that keeps coming up and the enemy says to you, you see, you see, you see, you can't do it. You're no good. Jesus doesn't want any part of you. How about that sin of the past that haunts you and follows you and he's always reminding you of what you did and how a real Christian wouldn't have done that. Oh, we could go on and on and on. And what the devil wants to do is so paralyze the child of God that they withdraw and they think there's no hope for freedom and ministry and joy. He wants to paralyze, but the Lord Jesus is different. Jesus reinstates us in our failures in order to energize us. He wants to energize us. The Lord Jesus knows our propensity to sin. He knows your weaknesses. He knows your temptations. He knows the things you struggle with. 
He knows the things that you have a tendency of letting him down in. He loves you. Did he not die in the midst of your sins? Yes. That Jesus died while you were sinners. Your sin doesn't surprise him. Your failure doesn't surprise him. Does it grieve him? Yes. But his Passion is to take his own and energize them in such a way that they move past the failures. Remember, this same Jesus who died on the cross for you, who redeemed you, has you in the palm of his hand. And he says in John 10, he will never let you go. When you and I fail him, he doesn't say, ooh, get off. He doesn't do that. He continues to hold you. And his desire is in the midst of your failures is to so energize your life that you will be able to walk away from that with freedom and with purpose. Here's where we come to John 21. And here are four things I want to teach you today of what Jesus is teaching us and what John is leaving us with. And this is so encouraging for everyone who's a follower of Christ because if you haven't failed, there will be a time in your life where you do. And what do you do with it? Do you allow the enemy to paralyze you? Or do you get up in the midst of that and allow the Lord Jesus to energize you and to use you? So what do we, what do we learn? Let me give you four things. Number one, even in our failure, Jesus is not far from us. I love this point. Even in our failure, Jesus is not far from us. The disciples had all scattered. They had all failed him and I notice, notice what John says in verses one through four. After this, Jesus revealed himself. After what? After his death, after his resurrection, after his meeting with them. He met with them on Sunday evening. He met with them eight days later. We don't know how long it's been since he's met. But after all of these things and everything that Peter and the disciples had been through when they scattered, he shows himself again by the Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. The Sea of Tiberias is the same thing as the Sea of Galilee. There were seven of them present when this happened. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, James and John, and two other disciples, most likely Andrew and Philip, because they were all fishermen and they were all together. We don't know where they were, but they were together. And in the midst of this, Hear the first words we hear from Peter. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. After his denial, after his going dark, the first words we hear is, I'm going fishing. I'm going to go fishing. Now, many scholars say, why is he going fishing? Some people say, oh, he was just trying to redeem the time. He was bored and he wanted to go fishing and waiting for Jesus to appear again. Some people say, no, he was going fishing because they saw they can make some money in this. And they'll catch some fish and provide some needs for their family. Some scholars say he was going fishing because he was throwing in a towel to ministry. He had so failed so miserably that he's just going to go back and do what he does best. We don't really know why, but the Holy Spirit led him to do that. So he announces he's going fishing and all of the disciples say, we will go with you. So Peter is still a good leader. They're still wanting to follow him. So they went out and they got in the boat, which means they all got in one boat, seven of these fishermen in one boat. But that night, they caught nothing. They fished all night, nothing. No bites, nothing. And then in verse four, just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. 
It's about 100 yards out. The boat's coming in. They're exhausted. The sun is starting to come out. They can't really tell who's standing on the shore, but they see a figure on the shore, on the shore, and they don't know who it is. Here's the point. Even in the midst of their failure, Jesus did not remove himself from them. He came to them. In the midst of their failure, he finds himself closely in proximity to them. He makes his way to them. Now, here's something we need to understand. While Jesus can be disappointed in our failure, he doesn't disown us in our failure. And that's something you need to understand because the enemy will want you to think that Jesus wants nothing to do with you when you fail. That is far from the truth. In fact, we know this, that in Psalm 34, 18, it says this, that that um, the Lord is close to those who are brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. In Psalm 145, verse 18, it says this, the Lord is close to those who call on him. He is never far off. And even in your failure, even when you find that you have disobeyed the Lord in some way, he is not running and hiding from you. He sees you. He knows what you're going through. His heart may be grieved, but it's also broken because he knows the propensity of what the enemy is going to do in your failure to so enslave you that the Lord Jesus never leaves you. He's the one who whispers in your ear, I will never leave you or forsake you. And the only way that happens is with proximity. So listen, in the midst of your failure, don't think that Jesus has gone hidden from you some corner in the universe. He's there, walking with you, seeing you where you are. But here's the second thing that we see. Even in our failure, Jesus still cares for us. I love this. He still cares for us. Jesus never writes us off. He still cares for us. The disciples in their failure thought they were on their own, but they were not. There is Jesus standing on the shore. He sees them, but he cares for them. So they've been fishing all night and they've caught nothing. And what does Jesus do? He said, children, do you have any fish? Now, if somebody's fishing all night and they catch nothing, the worst thing to ask them is, did you catch any fish? Because these are professional fishermen. They should have caught fish. So what do they say? They say, no. I mean, just very simple. No explanation. No. One word. And he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. Apparently not much is alive on the left side, right? So they cast it and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. They throw it on the right side. All of a sudden, they catch so many fish, they can't even pull it in. This reminds them of Luke chapter 5. When two and a half to three years earlier, the same thing happened, and Jesus told them to do that, and they caught all of these fish. goes on. The disciple whom Jesus loved, which is John, therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. Here's what's interesting about John. He's always the first to perceive spiritual things, isn't he? He's the first one that was able to run to the tomb. He was the first one to look in. He was the first one to believe. He was always the first to perceive. So he says, it is the Lord. And when Simon heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment for he was stripped for work and he threw himself into the sea. Now here's a picture. While 
John is the first to perceive. Peter is always the first to act. He's the first one to talk. He's the first one to jump out of the boat. He's the first one to run to the tomb and to run in the tomb. And I love this picture. Don't you love the language? It says that he threw himself out of the boat. I just imagine him grabbing himself by the collar and throwing himself in the ocean. And so he jumps in. Why does he jump in? The next verse tells us the other disciple came into the, in the boat dragging the net full of fish for they were not far from the land but were about 100 yards. Why did he jump in? They were too slow. They, he was impatient. This boat was full of fish. They were trying to get to the shore and Peter just said, I can swim way faster. John, you might be able to outrun me to the tomb but I can swim faster than you. Jumps in and he finds himself. Now here's the thing. They caught a lot of fish. How many fish did they catch? Well, any fisherman that goes fishing gives you the exact number of fish he catches, right? They don't say, I caught a few. They're going to tell you. In verse 11, we know exactly how many fish they caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153, and the net was not torn. 153 fish. I mean, there were 153 fish. Now, a lot of people will take those numbers and say, oh, they can mean this and mean this and mean this. Let me tell you what it means. It means they caught a bunch of fish, 153, but not just fish, large fish, large fish. I mean, they're not lying about it. The scripture's telling us they're large. How large? Out of the ordinary large. And because there were 153 and large fish, this was probably a record number. The only time this had happened before was three years earlier when Jesus said the same thing. What is the significance of that? Here's what the significance. Jesus is still taking care of them. Even after his resurrection, he's taking care of them. 153 large fish in that culture would be able to bring a significant amount of finances that would take care of their families, their debts, and their expenses so they could go on ministry with him and for him full time. Here's the point. Even in their failure, the Lord Jesus has continued to take care of them. Even in our failure, the Lord Jesus is still patient. He still blesses us. He still works with us. He's working in us. He gives us his Holy Spirit. He gives us his word. He gives us what we need to be able to be successful in honoring him. Sometimes in failure, we want to pull away. We want to think that Jesus is mad. We want to say, I can't do that. I, 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 and we act as though our salvation has to do with our actions, and we know they don't. And we'll act as though keeping our salvation has to do with how well I obey. But none of it is based on us. It's all based upon the Lord Jesus' work on the cross. And because of that, even when I fail, he does not relinquish his care over me. He is there waiting to embrace me even in the midst of failure. Here's the third thing. Even in our failure, Jesus invites us into a renewed fellowship with him. This gets crazy. Even in the midst of our failure, Jesus invites us to a renewed fellowship. Verses 9 through 14, look what happens. When they got out on land, they saw what? Charcoal fire. Peter, when he denied Jesus, was standing in front of a charcoal fire. 
When he comes to the beach, Jesus uses a charcoal fire. He's recreating that time of Peter's denial and giving him the opportunity to be renewed. And there's this charcoal fire, which was not usually used for cooking. And his charcoal fire is laid out with fish laid out on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. Jesus obviously has a couple of pieces of fish on there. He's got some bread, but there's seven of them plus him. There are eight people. So he needs some more fish. So he says, bring me some of those fish. Who is the first person to jump and do it? Simon Peter went aboard and he hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. Now, let me get this. The six disciples that were in a boat coming to the land while Peter was swimming were struggling to bring this big net of 153 fish. Peter single-handedly went and jumped in the boat, grabbed a whole net of 153 and brought them all to the fire. I mean, that's kind of an overkill, but he was going to make sure that he was going to follow the commands of his Savior and not deny him again. And so what happens is he brings it. And Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Let me tell you what's so significant about that. The greatest act of intimacy among friends in that culture was to eat together. The greatest act of fellowship in that culture was around a meal. If you really love someone, you bring them to your home. If you really respect someone, you bring them into fellowship. If you really want to pour in and invest in someone, it was always around a meal. And Jesus invites them to this fellowship with them. This is crazy. And none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus revealed himself to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. Let me tell you what Jesus did not do. When Jesus told them, said, come sit with me. Apparently, they didn't immediately eat. They were too busy staring at one another, staring at Jesus, trying to figure out the situation. And Jesus invites them into fellowship. And what Jesus didn't do is say, hey, guys, sit around. Let me lecture you on how bad you are. He didn't say, hey, guys, sit around. I want to scold you for a minute because I can't believe you scattered. Hey, guys, sit around. Let me tell you what the punishment is that I'm going to dole out on you. And don't you do it. No, he didn't do any of that. What did he do? He brought them back into a fellowship with him, demonstrating his incredible love for them. And let me say something. Jesus is not okay with our failure. He's not. Jesus doesn't condone our failures. But neither does he condemn us as his disciples when we do fail. You know what he does? He brings us back into fellowship. Sin always breaks fellowship with God. And if I'm continuing in sin, I am breaking my fellowship with him. But here's the invitation. Inviting them to a meal is the means by which Jesus restores us, where we sit in his presence and we recognize our failure and we recognize our sin and we confess and we repent and we're restored. I'm going to tell you, when you fail, when you fail, the Lord Jesus invites you back into fellowship with him. 
And that fellowship is the means by which you confess and you repent in his presence. He's not going to invite you into fellowship and say, hey, man, I'm going to tell you what, you let me down. And because you let me down, I'm going to limit my blessings in your, no. His desire is that we would be renewed with him. I want to tell you, some of you, it's been a long time since you've been back at the table of the Lord. The enemy has so defeated you with things of your past that you're thinking there is no way Jesus wants you. That there is no way I can be used effectively for the kingdom. And all along the way, Jesus is saying, no, just come sit with me. Come sit, come hear my heart. Come in my presence. It's my kindness that leads you to repentance. And it's in my presence that all of these issues will be resolved. I met a man some years ago who just quit coming to church. And I didn't know what happened, so I went and visited with him. And I said, can you tell me what's going on, brother? He said, yeah. He said, man, I had a terrible failure in my life. It was a failure in my marriage. And because of that, I, I couldn't read God's word anymore. I couldn't pray. I couldn't go to church. I just felt like there's no way God would accept me. I said, well, let me ask you, what's the answer? Do you think that you're going to earn your way back to him? Well, no, I can't do that. Do you, you're just waiting for time to go by and you think Jesus might forget? No. What are you trying to do? In your actions, you're saying that you've got to do something to make it right. And Jesus is just calling you to come sit back with him. And when you sit with him and when you're in his presence and you recognize his holiness and his passion for you, then the confession and the repentance will flow and you will be restored. But brother, as long as you run, you're living a defeated life and there's no joy. And it's in his presence that there's joy everlasting. And so when we fail, don't run. When he calls you to the table, come and sit with him. Here's the last thing. Even in our failures, Jesus reinstates us as followers. This is what he does to Peter. Here's Peter. He comes to him, and Jesus has been talking with them. They've just had a meal together, but now Jesus turns his attention to Peter specifically. And he's going to reinstate Peter and all of the disciples. And what he does, he's asked one question three times in two different ways. He says this, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Now, what does he mean more than these? Is he talking about, do you love me more than the boats and the fishing nets and the fishing career? Do you love me more than your career? Or do you love me than more of these, all the material things that the world has to offer? Or, do you love me more than these disciples love me? Which is probably what he's pointing to. It could be all three. But remember when Peter said, even if they fall away, I will not? And when Jesus said, do you love me more than these disciples love me? Brought him to a place of humility and brokenness. But then Jesus says, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said, feed my lambs. Now, here's what's interesting. There are four words for love in the Greek. There's phileo, which is a friendly kind of love. There's starge, which is a family love. There's eros, which is a romantic kind of love. And there's agape, which is a godly kind of love. Agape is a kind of love that is the ultimate love of sacrifice and seeking someone else's highest good. Jesus uses one word. Peter uses another. 
What does Jesus say? He says, Simon, do you agapao me? Do you love me to the point of ultimate sacrifice? And Peter says to him, yes, Lord, you know, talking of his sovereignty, that I love you as a friend. Peter couldn't even bring himself to the point of saying, I love you with the ultimate love because of his own failure. And even in his own failure, he doubted his ability to ever fully follow Christ. But Jesus still tells him, feed my lambs. Then he said a second time, Simon, son of John, do you agapao me? And John said to him, yes, Lord, in your sovereignty, you know that I love you as a friend. And Jesus said, tend my sheep. But then the third time, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you really love me as a friend? And that broke Peter's heart. Peter was grieved because he said a third time, do you love me as a friend? And he said, Lord, you know everything. There's nothing you don't know. And you know that I love you as a friend. And what did Jesus say? He said, feed my sheep. What's the point of this? He teaches John, uh, Peter four things. Number one, humility. There are other people, Peter, who love me with a deeper love than you have. Don't put yourself on a pedestal of thinking that you're the only one who loves me this way. Walk in humility because every one of us is very close to wandering. Walk in humility. Secondly, honesty. Peter, you were honest. You could only say you love me as a friend, but that's going to change because you will love me with all of your heart and your soul and your mind and your strength. There are many times the Lord Jesus will ask us questions. You know what he asks us for? For honesty. We can't fool him. And sometimes we think we can fool him by the things that we say. And he's really asking us some tough questions sometimes. And he's wanting us to be honest with him. Lord Jesus, you know I want to love you with the sacrificial love. But right now, because of the failures in my own life, I feel like this. Yes, I love you as a friend. Honesty. Priority. Peter, the most important thing is your love for me. It's not going to be the success of your obedience in every occasion. It's going to be your love. Does love so characterize your life that when people see you, you know that you, they know that you are fully 100% devoted to me above all things? Because Peter, you will fail, and he does. But Peter, here's the thing. Your love for me is going to demonstrate itself in ultimate sacrifice because you will, like me, be crucified on a Roman cross. He says it at the end of this chapter. And the last thing he says is this, ministry. Peter, follow me. Peter, I want you to, I want you to feed my lambs. I want you to tend my sheep. I want you to feed my sheep. Peter, the ministry I have for you is not built upon the failures of your past, but upon my faithfulness for your future. 
You know what happens? Peter's never the same again. Never. He's never the same. He's forever changed after this. Peter ends up being crucified for Jesus Christ on a Roman cross upside down. And he chose to be crucified upside down because he felt like he was not worthy of dying in the same manner that his Savior died. But here's the thing. Regardless of the failure of his past, none of that ever affected his future from that point on because from that point on, he was absolutely committed and sold out to the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because the Lord saw him. The Lord continued to take care of him. The Lord invited him to the table. The Lord reinstated him and set him free to be able to serve the Lord. In my own life, I had to deal with this. When I failed so miserably with Mike, but God set me free from that point. And he helped me to understand that Mike's eternal destiny was not in my hands. My obedience to Jesus was in my hands. And what did I do? From that point on, I made a commitment that I will do everything I can to follow Jesus. And when I fail, he is there to receive me back, to bring me back into wretch fellowship, that I might confess, that I might repent, and that the overwhelming mark of my life is a love for him. Now, I don't know where you are today. I don't know if Satan has so paralyzed you, but the Lord Jesus wants you to be free because he died for that sin. He paid the price for that failure. And he's the only one that has the freedom for you to get up and to trust him and to walk in a renewed relationship. Some of you, he is calling you back into fellowship and you're putting yourself in a prison that you don't have to be in because he's got the freedom that he's offering you to come to him. Come back. Renew that. Trust him. Walk in obedience. If you're here today and you're not a believer, I want to tell you that the Lord Jesus is the only one that can clean up the mess of your life. He's the only one who can set you free. And he is here today offering that to you as well. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to close in prayer. I'm going to ask you to stand and we're going to sing a song. So go ahead and stand. Cross Point Center, go ahead and stand. And as we sing this song in closing, this will be kind of your testimony. Because some of you might just need to say, give me faith, Lord. I need faith. I'm weak, but you're strong. And maybe during this song, you might need to just come to this, this front and just come before the Lord and pray. Maybe you need to come to his table this morning that he's inviting you to. Give obedience to that. Father, thank you for your word. We thank you, Father, that the Lord Jesus loves us so much that he never stops loving us. And Father, what he has for us, even in the midst of our failure, is this reconciliation, this reinstatement, this renewed fellowship. May we, Father, always run to him and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. And we hope that God uses this message in you to transform you more into the image of Christ. If you have any questions about our church or you want to learn more about Jesus, visit our website at scottsill.org slash next steps. Till next time.